Hey, tonight's topic is a little bit heavier than usual. It's going to require a little bit more intellectual uh, effort on all of our parts. There are some parts of scripture that require us to be more intellectually engaged. But God has redeemed our mind. He's redeemed our heart. He's redeemed our intellect so that we can meet him in his word. So I want to ask all of us tonight, by God's grace, let's work hard to understand this passage. Because we're in Romans 9, uh, Romans 9, verse 7, where we said, really, the thrust of this entire passage is, first of all, found in the first six verses, where we read about Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his uh, Jewish brothers and sisters who don't know Christ. He so desperately wants them to find the Messiah, the fulfillment of their Jewish heritage, and his heart is broken for them. He wants them to come to Jesus. That's the heart. But then when we get into uh, verse 7 and beyond, it can become a little bit confusing. And it has been the most fiercely debated section, uh, passage in the entire Bible. There's even been bloodshed, believe it or not. Uh, not in the recent history of the church and not in this church. There's been no bloodshed. But over this passage, over many of the thoughts in the passage. Know this, though. All of Romans 9... No matter where you fall doctrinally, it is all about one simple truth. We are saved, that is rescued from our sin and lostness by grace and grace alone, not by works. We are not saved, that is rescued. We don't come into salvation because we've worked hard enough to earn God's favor, because we've been good enough, because we've attended enough church services. It's all about God's grace. You know, the two main perspectives or camps when it comes to interpreting Romans 9 uh, really involve ways in which uh, salvation and all of Scripture are interpreted. And these two camps are called Calvinism and Arminianism. And before diving into that, uh, uh, I want to explain why we're spending time talking about these two dudes, okay? The reason is... I find that those who adhere too much, who are too extreme of an Arminian or a Calvinist, they oftentimes have such a thick lens that they view Scripture through that when they read, they've already decided what the passage says before they've done the hard work of studying it. And I think in Scripture, you find truths in both of these camps. And in some ways, there's a tension there that we can't reconcile in our own weak human minds. We simply can't do it. I think it requires a humility. Because when we read scripture, we must realize how we want to see God versus how, who God really is. And this radically impacts how we view scripture. Because this can be an offensive section of scripture. There are some truths in Romans 9 that can rock us to the core. And we read it and think, I didn't know God was like this. But let me just affirm, and I know all of us would agree, we don't want God to be the way we think he should be, do we? We don't want him to behave in terms of what we find comfortable, do we? Because if we can make God like us, then he's not God. 
He's a figment of our imagination. It makes sense that there will be aspects of God's character, some we like, some that we find warm and fuzzy, and others that oftentimes we might even find terrifying. He is a big God. And I pray tonight that we think that we think hard, we think with the redeemed mind of Christ, and we think humbly and with broken hearts about the truths here, that we are saved by grace and grace alone. So we have Calvinism from John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, and Arminianism from Jacob Arminius, who lived from 1560 to 1609. Since the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, Christian churches and leaders have disagreed over such issues as depravity, that is our own sinfulness, over God's sovereignty, that is God is in control and he is separate from our own, our own will and desire, human responsibility, that is what is our response to God, election, that is who God chooses unto salvation, predestination, that's the idea that God has predestined beforehand who will come to know him and who will not. Eternal security, that is uh, whether or not we can be secure in the fact that we're going to go to heaven, that we're going to be with Jesus forever or not. And the nature and extent of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that is his shed blood on the cross, dying in our place for sin. These doctrines, doctrines are often organized around how, Car, uh, how Calvin and Arminius, Arminius interpreted the Bible. Although trained in the Reformed tradition, Arminius had serious doubts about the doctrines of sovereign grace as taught by the followers of John Calvin. He was a pastor of the Reformed congregation in Amsterdam in 1588. But during his 15 years of ministry there, he began to question many of the conclusions of Calvinism. He left the pastorate and became professor of theology at the University of Leiden. It was his series of lectures on election and predestination that led to a violent, yes, violent, and tragic controversy. After his death in 1609, his followers developed the Remonstrance of 1610, which outlined the five points of Arminianism. This document was a protest against the doctrines of the Calvinists and was submitted to the state of Holland. In 1618, a national synod of the church was convened in Dort to examine the teachings of Arminius in the light of scripture. After 154 sessions lasting seven months, and you think at times I give long teachings. After that long, the five points of Arminianism were declared to be heretical. After the synod, many of the disciples of Arminius, such as Hugo Grotius, were imprisoned or banished. When John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, took up some of the teachings of Arminianism, the movement began to grow and it affected the Methodist tradition as well as the beliefs of most Pentecostal and charismatic churches. So that's just a brief explanation of kind of how we got to these two different camps. So what is Arminianism? What is it? Focus with me here. The five points, and this will be on the screen, the five points of Arminianism include the following. Number one, free will. Arminius believed that the fall of man, and you can, you can find passages to back up every single one of these truths. Arminius believed that the fall of man was not total, maintaining that there was enough good left in man for him to will to accept Jesus Christ unto salvation. This is often referred to as the divine spark left in humanity from before the fall to help us find the Lord. So there is a goodness still in us. Conditional election, the second point. Arminius believed that election was based on the foreknowledge of God as to who would believe so God knows beforehand who will receive and who will reject him. 
But man's act of faith was seen as the condition of his being elected to eternal life since God foresaw him exercising his free will in response to Jesus Christ. So you'll hear a lot in Arminianism of free will, our choice, this divine spark. Next, the third is universal atonement. Arminius held that redemption was based on the fact that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everyone, and that the Father is not willing that any should perish. The death of Christ provided the grounds for God to save all men, but each must exercise his own free will in order to be saved. Next is obstructible grace. Arminius believed that since God wanted all men to be saved, he sent the Holy Spirit to woo all men to Christ. But since man has absolute free will, he is able to resist God's will for his life. He believed that God's will to save all men can be frustrated by the finite will of man. He also taught that man exercises his own free will and then is born again. So again, man must choose. Fifth and finally, falling from grace. If man cannot be saved by God, it is man's will to be saved then man cannot continue in salvation unless he continues to will to be saved. So one can walk into saving faith and then walk out of it. You've heard this as the idea of losing your salvation. That can happen according to this line of thinking. So, you guys still with me? Good, good. See, in in our baseball team, this is the sign for what, Caleb Cox? What is it? Suicide squeeze, good job. But here it's just good job. It's, yeah. All right. So what does Calvinism believe? Interestingly, John Calvin, the French reformer, did not formulate what today we know as the five points of Calvinism. This came out of the canons of the Council of Dort in 1618 and subsequent statements among the many reform confessions, and there are many. Those in the reform tradition who answered the teachings of Arminius' five points chose the word tulip as an acrostic to summarize and answer this debate. They came to the five points of Arminianism. So now we have the five points of Calvinism or TULIP. T stands for total depravity. The Calvinists believe that man is in absolute bondage to sin and Satan, unable to exercise his own will to trust in Jesus Christ without the help of God. There is no divine spark. U is unconditional election. The Calvinists believe that foreknowledge is based upon the plan and purpose of God and that election is not based on the decision of man, but the free will of the creator alone. God has to choose. L, for limited atonement. The Calvinists believe that Jesus Christ died to save those who were given to him by the Father in eternity past. In their view, all for whom Jesus died, which was just for the elect, will be saved. And all for whom he did not die, the non-elect, will be lost. And then I is irresistible grace. The Calvinists believe that the Lord possesses irresistible grace that cannot be obstructed. They taught that the free will of man is so far removed from salvation that the elect are regenerated, made spiritually alive by God, even before expressing faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. If a totally depraved person wasn't alive by the Holy Spirit, such a calling from God would be impossible. And then fifth, P, perseverance of the saints. The Calvinists believe that salvation is entirely the work of the Lord and that man has absolutely nothing to do with the process. The saints will persevere because God will see to it that he'll finish the work he's begun. This thought is often summarized as once saved, 
always saved. Okay, so many times people summarize each of these doctrines as once saved, always saved versus the idea you can lose your salvation, but there's much more to it than that. On one hand, you have much to do with choice, our choice, and on the other end, you have, uh, it is God's choice of who he will save. It's all uh, on him. Again, I took the extra time to go through these important doctrines because I believe that too strict of an adherence to one or the other can drastically affect how we view Scripture because we've already decided before we've read. And I do believe that the Word says aspects of both. I really do. I think an extreme Arminian or an extreme Calvinist are wrong because I think that we like to find a comfortable set or framework to view Scripture through. We as Americans as Westerners love a system to where we don't have to think. We can just say, this is what I believe. And we take the teachings of man and apply it across the board. We have to do the hard work of studying the Bible. It's hard. It's grueling. It can be grueling at times. But we don't have a spirit of timidity. We have a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline because of the spirit in us. You see, there are dozens of verses that support both Calvinism and Arminianism. Tonight, we're looking at Romans 9, where honestly, I'll show my cards a little bit. I think that leans towards Calvinism. I think there's much in Romans 9 about God's choice in salvation. But there are many other passages in Scripture that seem to support a more Arminian perspective, where man's choice to respond to grace is paramount. Like John 12, 32, where it says that Jesus will draw all men to himself, And that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, not just the elect in John 16, 8. And that's just to name a few. There are many, dozens and dozens that we could look at in both camps. So we need humility. In the midst of this discussion, it would be wise for all of us not to ignore or neglect the plain statements of Scripture. But instead, have a childlike heart that's soft and palatable and that sees the, the threads of truth that run through Both camps that were saved by grace alone and let that break our hearts and have soft hearts, but have hard, disciplined minds. That's what we're called to. Both perspectives believe the main point of Romans 9 is found in verse 6. Romans 9 verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel. Remember we said that starting in Romans 9, we move into another section of Romans where the discussion is God's relationship, the gospel's relationship to the Jews, who were the ones to originally receive the promise. So agreement in both schools rests on the fact that this passage is dealing with Roman Jews who struggled with whether or not they needed Christ for salvation. And he says, not all those who are Jewish, he says, not all those who are descended from Israel are really Israel. So not all those who have Jewish blood have Jewish faith in God as we'll see as we unlock the package here. And both sides agree that salvation comes through Christ alone, by grace, not by works, through faith. In Romans 9, 16, it says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, many of you at this point who identify as minimalist, your bottom line kind of people, and you're thinking to yourself right now, Chris, how is this gonna relate to my Monday morning? All right, how is this going to help me? I'm a bottom line kind of person. Let me just tell you, although there's many things these two camps have in common, I share them because they matter. They radically affect how we view the gospel, how we view our will in relationship to God, 
and how we view God's character. It matters. It matters. It's worth thinking about and praying through. The differences will show us tonight the importance of carefully studying and interpreting the Bible and the importance of sometimes juggling uh, several orthodox perspectives that spirit-led believers uh, uh, adhere to that are anchored in Scripture and to, to juggle the tension of both and have a humility to see the other side. On some issues, we know if someone questions the divinity of Christ, we say, no, that's a national boundary, and I'm not crossing that one. But sometimes there are local boundaries like this one where we can say, you know what? I see what you think there. We're in fellowship together. We love one another. We can agree to disagree, and yes, there is a tension in Scripture here. So we want a humility. Um, It would have been much easier. Let me just say, it would have been much easier for me to just share my perspective with you on Romans 9. I would have had a lot more of my week, okay? Uh, A lot more of my week. It would have been much less grueling. But I felt like it lacked humility because while uh, I lean in a certain direction in my perspective between these two camps, I know there are other people in this church who I dearly love and respect who leave in the other direction. And there are Bible scholars and theologians that I respect that lean in the other direction. I went to a school that tends to lean in the other direction. So I have a tremendous respect. Uh, Okay. All right. I'm almost done with my introduction. We're about to get to the main passage. The key interpretive difference then, and if you didn't come last week, I don't have time to review all that we went through last week. Yeah, you would be wanting to kill me. But you're going to want to listen to last week's teaching online to be able to connect the dots. But the key interpretive difference then is the main question that each perspective, both Calvinism and Arminianism, identifies as the one being answered in Romans 9. Because remember... We said that Paul's having this imaginary debate, which was a popular teaching style of the day, where there's an imaginary questioner that's bringing uh, uh, questions and ideas that would serve as rebuttals that Paul knew his Jewish brothers and sisters would have regarding this hard teaching he was about to give. Okay, so there are two different perspectives on the main question being asked. For the committed Calvinists, the main question Paul's trying to answer is this. It seems like God's word has failed because most of the Jews have rejected Christ. Why can uh, some come to faith in Christ and why do some reject? That's the main question for them, and and I can see that. The answer to to the Calvinist in this passage is simple. Because God shows some to salvation and some to judgment. It's by grace, and God has his elect, and he has those who are not elect. For the Arminian, it's not quite so simple. They think Paul's, the main question he's answering in this passage is, why is faith in Christ necessary for the Jew? Because if Christ is necessary for salvation, then these Jews thought the word of God had failed. Again, according to Arminianism. That's why Paul says, all who descended from Israel are not Israel. So that was the thought there. The answer according to this line of thought, or the, yeah, the answer according to this line of thought is because salvation is found in repentance. That's the answer, and we'll get into, you'll, you'll see how that um, unpacks here in a minute. That is turning from self-reliance to faith in Christ. So for the Arminian, this passage is dynamic and not static, meaning the majority of Jews who are not true Jews need only choose Christ and repent of their sins. They can move from being objects of wrath to objects of mercy through repentance. 
For the Calvinists, this chapter is static. More specifically, this passage communicates God's sovereign choice before creation to save some and judge others. There's no divine spark according to this perspective. Nothing good left over in us from before the fall. He chose his people, period. Now, let me say, just because the Calvinist perspective doesn't seem fair according to our Western thinking, there are definitely passages that lend themselves to this reality. There are passages that lend themselves to the, the realities expressed, the truths expressed in Arminianism as well, that our will plays a major role in our salvation. This will make more sense, though, as we dive in a little deeper. Let's pray right after I get a drink of water. I'm going to work you guys tonight. I hope you're ready to work hard with me here. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have brothers and sisters all over the world who fall on different sides of the spectrum here. Lord, but we love one another and we love them. Lord, and we know that in the end, it's about your grace that saves us. Your grace alone, we know that in the end, we don't understand your thoughts. We know that in the end, we're to share your gospel in season and out of season. Lord, we know that in the end, we're to have a broken heart for lost people. And we love you, Lord. Please teach us tonight. Make us humble. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Romans 9, verse 6, it says, It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So Paul is making his case as to why God's word has not failed. Or I should say God is making his case as to why his word hasn't failed through Paul. The promise was from God originally to the Jews. The promise of salvation was originally to the Jews. But Paul plainly states that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who, who have Jewish blood, who have... Uh, uh, who ethnically are Jewish, are true Jews in terms of their faith, their position in Christ. So here he starts the argument as to how someone could be genetically Jewish, but not truly Jewish in faith. And there's much agreement at this point between the two camps. True Israel then comes through Abraham's children. And remember, we said that Abraham received a promise. And that promise was that Abraham would be the line through which God's chosen people would come through. Not just a physical family, although he received that as well, but a spiritual one. Nations of people. Uh, and, and that nation would find its fulfillment in the birth, the life, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is the, the ultimate father that Abraham is a foreshadow to. And we're all part of this Abrahamic line, this promise of a great nation, a great kingdom of God that grows every time someone comes to know and love Jesus, okay? So true Israel comes through Abraham's children. That's what this passage says. This new humanity. But this promise is not just for physical offspring, but for the new Adams, okay? Those who we said Adam, uh, it, the word for Adam that we find in the Genesis account is the same word. For, it is the word in Hebrew for, for uh, humanity, for human, and Jesus is a new human. 
He represents a new way of life. The old Adam represented the way of sin, and the new Adam represents Jesus, represents the way of life, the resurrected life. So children of Abraham are ones who live under King Jesus who offers us this resurrected life. It's not about genetics. So let's start with some background here because what Paul's doing in verse 7, he says, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. See, that's just one quote here. But the Jewish audience who heard this in verse 7, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. A whole story in Genesis came to their mind. So there was a context there that we need to look at. And then also in verse 9, at the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Okay, so we're going to go through both of those here. So we're going to rewind, hit the rewind button. Do you guys, yeah, I guess you know what a rewind button is, even though you don't use tapes and all that stuff. But hit the rewind button. We're going to go hundreds of years back in redemptive history from Romans chapter 9 all the way to Genesis 17, verse 15. It says, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Remember, that's talking about the kingdom of God. That's talking about what would ultimately find its fulfillment in Christ. And, and, and Abraham would also receive a physical son here that would be part of that line. Abraham fell face down. He laughed. God's talking to him and he laughed. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So when God promised Abraham and Sarah this nation of redemptive people, there was a problem. Sarah was barren, and they were both very, very old. They didn't even have one biological kid together. So in desperation, Sarah had her slave, Hagar, mother a child, since she couldn't conceive. So Abraham laughed at this promise from God, and he looked at what he saw as his reality. And that is, well, I have this, this half-son, that I, that, uh, this surrogate mother, Hagar. I have this child, uh, Ishmael. Just bless him. The, the problem was that even though the practice of using a surrogate mother, a slave, was common during this time period, Sarah became jealous, and Hagar became afraid. You see, her son, Isaac, eventually was born as promised, and she didn't want her son to have to share an inheritance with Ishmael, the half-son, the, the son of the slave woman, Hagar. All right, so move forward a little bit here. Genesis 21, verse 10. And she, that Sarah, said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, but God has said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, this, this line of people, this nation of people, this kingdom of God is going to come through the child of promise, not the child of the flesh. This was an argument that the Jews would have, this Jewish audience would have understood. They would have understood the context. They would have heard it since they were wee little tiny ones. That is, just as Ishmael was physically or naturally descended from Abraham, he's saying, so some of you Jews are naturally or ethnically Jews. That's what Paul's telling these Jews who resided in Rome. But Isaac was a child of promise. He was a miracle child, a child of faith, born from an old man and a barren woman. 
He's saying to them, many of you are not true children of Abraham spiritually. That is, your heart has not been transformed because you rely on the law instead of on Christ. Many of you are Ishmael, the natural son, and not Isaac, the spiritual son. Okay, so Paul builds his argument a step forward, a step uh, further here in Romans 9, verse 10. He's connecting it to the last passage. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before, we're going down the family line here, down the, the promised line of, of na uh, a nation of God's people. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Now look at this in verse 12. Not by works, but by him who calls. Everybody agrees on that. Salvation is not by works, but comes through Christ. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's where it gets a little dicey, okay? Now, why would Paul continue this argument on the importance of someone being a child of promise in order to be saved instead of simply, be born, instead of simply being born a natural child? Didn't he just do that? Didn't he just do that with Isaac and Ishmael? He just, he just made that argument. Why is he continuing on with just another example? Well, because a Jewish person might respond to Paul's first reference to Ishmael and Isaac with a thought like, well, Paul, I mean, Isaac was a pure-blooded Jew. Isaac was a pure-blooded Jew. Ishmael wasn't. Isaac had two Jewish parents. I mean, Abraham and Hagar, one was Jewish and one wasn't. Ishmael wasn't a legit Jew. In other words, his reference to Ishmael and Isaac could simply affirm their false notion that they were chosen by God simply because they were genetically Jewish. But Jacob and Esau both had 100% Jewish blood flowing through their veins. Neither one of them had done anything wrong because they were still wee little infants, right? They had done rough, nothing wrong or right to deserve salvation or judgment. Now, According to the Arminian perspective, this is not talking about salvation. This is talking about the family line that would be chosen to bring uh, uh, the Christ through. And the idea here, catch this, in Arminianism in this passage is that God can choose whatever method he wants for salvation and he never chose the law. He never chose it. It has always been through faith in Christ. So yeah, God can choose uh, Isaac instead of Ishmael, he can, you, he can choose Jacob instead of Esau, he can choose Christ instead of the law, because it's his prerogative. The Calvinists would say, no, this is a continuation of thought, where we see God divinely chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and then later on we'll read a few more examples that are even more difficult to talk about. You'll get a week break. Phil will talk about something entirely different. Then I'll come back and drill you with this week after next. But it's, it's a line that goes all the way to the Gentiles. That's us, those who non-Jews, that God has this, these two lines, okay, uh, in this passage. One is those who are saved. One is those who are not. And he's building the argument that God is in control. He's chosen some for salvation and some to be cut off from Christ. You've got the line of uh, Abraham uh, and Isaac. You've got the line of Ishmael and Esau. So do you guys understand what I'm saying there? 
One line is destined for condemnation. The other line is destined for salvation. All the way to Jews who know Christ and Gentiles who know Christ and us here tonight. All right. Excellent. Um, so to further drive home his point, we read Paul quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Again, uh, rewinding hundreds of years back into redemptive history, he's bringing up a reference that they would have understood immediately. And all Paul says in verse 13 in Romans 9, where it says, he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, they would have thought of a whole story there. And this is the story they would have thought of. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. It says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay, let's, let's stop right there. I have loved you. That's talking about Israel. Okay, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Jacob also there represents Israel. But Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. Okay. To the Calvinist, Calvinism would believe that when it says that um, uh, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, that again, that's referring to this line. One line of Christ where redemption will come through that we're a part of now and another line that will be condemned. That includes Ishmael and Esau. To the Arminian, they have a different perspective that's a little more complicated. They would say that this passage here has, again, nothing to do with salvation, but that here it's referring to land, that God has land in a people that he's promised. And that Esau's land was represented by verse 4 here in Malachi, Edom. Okay? And that God, this is, this is a challenge to the Jews that you must believe that salvation comes through Christ. He's answering the question, why do Jewish people need Christ? Because the issue here is that Jacob was no more deserving than Esau. The Calvinist interprets this to mean that God chooses who will believe and then they're saved undeservedly by faith in spite of their sinful condition. Accordingly, just as Esau and Jacob had absolutely nothing to do with their being chosen or not uh, chosen to be the one through whom the Abrahamic promise would come through, so salvation comes through God choosing or rejecting those who will be saved or judged. So children of Abraham, those who are chosen, that is those who have received the promise of salvation, are represented by Isaac and Jacob, whereas Ishmael and Esau represent those who are cut off from Christ. So according to Calvinists, this line of thought says that salvation doesn't depend on human initiation at all. It's God who decides who will rebel and deservingly be lost because of their sin. God, though, according to the Calvinist line of thought, doesn't think that God violates the will, who would, will of those who would otherwise choose God. He knows what their will would be, but he's known so before time, and he has caused that willfulness to reject Christ. But he doesn't somehow change our will from positive towards Christ to negative. It gets a little complicated. To the Arminian uh, also, Paul, when he echoes Malachi 1 and Romans 9 using the term hated, 
Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. He's saying that in terms of preference, not an illustration to define who will and will not be elected unto salvation. An example they, they would use would be Jesus' words in Luke 14, 26. It says, if anyone comes to me, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person can't be my disciple. So Jesus isn't saying there that we should hate our parents. He's saying that our love for our parents should be like, like hatred in comparison for our love for God. So for the Arminian, this passage is not answering the question of who gets saved, like the Calvinist who says God's elect are the ones who are saved, but rather how someone gets saved. Namely, from this passage, they hold that Paul's hypothetical questioner is asking, why do I need Christ to be saved if I'm ethnically Jewish? So they would say, yes, God has a preference through the line that he's going to bring about his, his kingdom through. They have, he has a, a preference as far as the genetic line and then the spiritual line through which he would bring about the promised Messiah. But it's not a passage about election. And again, from Arminian's perspective, God sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau, and by implication, he can choose on the basis of faith in Jesus as opposed to... Uh, a faith based on adherence to the law and ethnicity. Uh, so in many ways, these interpretations are very different. I mean, one says this is about choosing Christ's invitation so that you may be graced with repentance unto salvation. It's just trying to say the Jew, to the Jews, according to the Arminian perspective, hey, God can choose any method he wants for salvation. You need to repent. Remember, it's a dynamic relationship with God where you can come in and out of being an object of mercy to an object of wrath and back, according to Arminianism. The other, Calvinism, this passage boldly declares the fact that God's word is not failed because even though many Jewish people, and by application many people in general, have rejected Jesus, the word of God has not failed because he has predestined some to be saved and some to be lost. And again, I'm, I am intentionally right now, guys, I am mirroring the extreme beliefs of both sides. There are many Calvinists and Arminians who would have a uh, more moderate view here. So to the Arminian, the rejection of Ishmael and Esau was a rejection not of them personally, but of them being the persons through whom the Abrahamic promise would continue. To them, God chooses the message for saving faith. He can reject Jewish ethnicity as a means for salvation and embrace faith in Christ as how one may be saved. For the Calvinists, the rejection of Esau and Ishmael and the choosing of Isaac and Jacob demonstrate a line of thought that will continue on through the rest of Romans where God is spelling out the fact that his word has not failed because non-believing non Jews reject Jesus because that has been God's divine will. So in one sentence, the Arminian sees this passage as an invitation to repent, where the Calvinist sees this passage as an explanation for why some reject and why some embrace the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. Now let's get to the important, what I see as the important part. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. There are two very, these are two very different perspectives, aren't they, in many ways. But there's a common thread that runs through them, and I don't want us to forget this. 
A spirit-led believer sees the first six verses of Romans 9 as central. That is, we are to have a broken heart for the lost. Paul says he has unceasing anguish for his Jewish brother. That means never-ending anguish for his brothers and sisters who are far from Christ. Both understand that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Both the extreme Arminian and the extreme Calvinist. They understand that elsewhere in Scripture it says in as much. God asked rhetorically in Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of the truth, according to 1 Timothy 2. Luke 15, 7 says that there's a celebration in heaven every time a sinner repents. Both would also affirm the biblical teaching in John 6 that no one can come to the Father unless Jesus draws him or her. Likewise, both believe that every person whom the Father has given to Jesus will come. We read again in Romans 9, 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The assurance of God's sovereign and absolute power to save is championed in both camps. The assurance that God is in control should stimulate courage rather than contention. It should inspire hope and not despair. To know that God has a plan and a people emboldens us to proclaim the gospel to every person we meet. Both camps, if they're healthy believers with a high view of scripture, would believe that. Both most certainly agree that God is sovereign and that means that none can come to Jesus despite our clever phrases, our latest methods, and polished good deeds unless the Father draws him or her to himself. At the same time, it assures us that every person the Father has given to Jesus will come without exception, despite our own blunders in sharing with others. And I want to say tonight, the heart of this passage for you who may feel far from Christ is very simple. Paul is laboring to show these Roman Jewish, these Roman Jews who are, who are battling with this Jewish heritage that they came from. And the idea that they're being called to faith in Christ, they're struggling. And regardless of what perspective you may have on Romans 9, the common denominator is it is by grace. You can't rely on the heritage that you have of going to church on Sundays as a kid. Maybe that was wonderful for you. And every time you come into a church service, you hear songs that are familiar to you. You hear comforting words. You love the friendly people. And that's wonderful. What's not so wonderful if, is if that lulls you into thinking that church attendance are works or works, merit your salvation, that somehow you're good enough to be accepted by God. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. Our salvation is found in Christ alone, not by works. So tonight, maybe you are realizing that, yeah, Chris, I've gone to church. I believe all this stuff, but I've never cried out for Jesus to rescue me from my sin. Well, tonight, you'll, you'll have that opportunity. In just a few moments, our other pastor, Kimball, he'll share with you how you can walk into a relationship with Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with passion for people. Lord, we pray that you would give us broken hearts as we think about our need for you. Thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.